Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Support for the podcast also comes from Elsa's. Elsa's is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau Montréal. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likefillpodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking with my friend, uh, Eleanor Noble, uh, actor and the president of Actra. Welcome, Eleanor. Hi, John. Thank uh, you for having me here. Yeah. So why don't you tell our listeners uh, sort of who you are and what, because we have listeners all over the world, so they won't, everybody in Canada will know what Actra is, but maybe just introduce yourself and the organization that you are the president of. Okay. Well, first and foremost, I'm a professional actor working in Canada. Um, I have been one for 30 years in uh, every aspect of the profession. And I am vice president of Actra Montreal, and I am the president of Actra National. And Actra stands for Alliance of Cinema, Television, Radio, um, uh, Canadian Alliance. Uh, sorry, artists. Alliance of... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I totally messed that up. ACTRA stands for the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, Radio Artists. Yeah. It's, it's, acronyms are horrible. It's like we, I, they're, they're, we did a long hot walk up here, so I just I was yeah. like, wait a second. <laughs> all right. I'm just, you know. So uh, I guess I have so many questions about this. First of all, uh, just the acting profession has always fascinated me because... It is one of these professions that, on the one hand, people, I think some people think of it as being, I don't know, like being a musician or being like sort of like frivolous, like it's just entertainment. But then on the other hand, it ends up shaping how people behave in the world. It shapes their ideas about all sorts of things about culture. People start talking and behaving and dressing like particular actors. Like, I remember... Uh, it's kind of a sad, sad time to have this conversation. But I was at a 9-11 funeral, a friend of ours who was killed on 9-11. And it was all these, like, Navy guys because he was um, at the Pentagon, the plane that went to the Pentagon. And there's all these – and we somehow got into a conversation about Top Gun. And it was just unbelievable how many of these guys said that they decided their whole fucking career in life – like what they decided to do with most of their time, and some of them die, including one, our friend Darren, who had just died. Uh, they all decided to go fly planes in the Navy because of watching Top Gun, right? So a movie, like, and an acting performance led to all these people. And the same thing has happened in many, many different ways, and that's why often militaries will um, will very much coordinate and we'll let them use stuff because they know it's amazing for recruitment regardless of whether the movie is critical of the military or not so acting has this powerful way to kind of shape the culture but then it's also somehow seen as being like a frivolous entertainment thing i don't like how do you think about all that oh gosh i mean the industry is so complex but you're right Uh, we are the original influencers so yes we have just like like books are as well. If you've read books and growing up as a child and you read certain books like something on ballet and you want to become a ballet uh, dancer or whatever it is, right? So it's the same in film and television and what we do and same in animation and how, why it's so important nowadays that we're writing better stories that are more diverse and more inclusive about 
the real world that we live in because looking back on things, though we had really great influential movies like Top Gun that inspired all these people to go into the military and fly planes, um, we also had a very white industry that depicted uh, the world as being particularly white and in one sort of frame of mind. So we're uh, mindful of that now. And so much has happened in the world. And we're looking back reflectively on on the types of productions that have been written and produced and created. And we're trying to change that. And we're in a, you know, work in progress of changing that it is getting better, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be. But the idea of all of that is that it will keep growing in that direction and become more influential on a broader base to a broader wide community worldwide. But sure, it's like, you know, film and television is a religion in itself. Like anywhere you are in the world, most people have, you know, seen Star Wars or something like that. So, uh, yeah, we know. We know that it gets into households everywhere. And it doesn't matter your religion, your color, your, you know, it, 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 it's influential. And, and that's a huge responsibility in the industry. And we know that it, they haven't, the industry hasn't done a great job always um, because it's targeted to a particular group of people. Mm-hmm. So, well, it does become kind of the, you know, one of the main parts of a universal popular culture. So in the past, the biggest, most successful forms of popular culture would have been in the, the history of our species would have been like Christianity, Islam. Those were both like, you know, regardless of what your feelings are about religion, they were incredibly influential, like stories and, you know, narratives and with main characters. And it was, became like a recognizable popular culture over huge swaths of the, the world. Right now that would be like Harry Potter or Star Wars or various other things, Game of Thrones, like where that can cut through so many differences mm-hmm. of, of language, of culture, of like, very different places. You can just say, um, you know, like I, I remember, when was this? It was like about 10, 12 years ago. And in Pakistan, they were, I mean, this happened all over the world, but in Pakistan, like groups that were critici- criticizing government were presenting the government figures as being like Harry Potter villains. And it's very, so like, oh, they're, and this becomes like a way of talking about things, right? But you mentioned the analogy to books, and um, I, I remember my favorite, like one of my favorite profs in undergrad, he was a amazing philosopher, Horst Hutter, and he used to always say that if Plato were alive today, he wouldn't write books, he would make movies. Mm. Because if you want to actually, which is what Plato wanted to do, if you want to influence as many people as possible, you have to, that's not that many people read books anymore. So you, it's better to like, right. you know, make, I mean, that's why Leonard Cohen stopped for the most part, stopped writing poetry books and started doing music because he realized the, where the action is for poetry is in music now. Like, why am I going to write poetry books that only like yeah. I mean, dweebs like read? <laughs> like, like that's not like if I make songs, suddenly I can reach like massive amounts of people with my poetry. So I guess what do you think as an industry, as a representative of the industry and as somebody who's been in it for decades, like how do you – do you see yourself fundamentally as an entertainer or do you th- see yourself and the industry as, as, as entertainment or do you think you're through various diversi- diversity initiatives and other things, do you think you're trying to sort of shape like a culture in a particular direction? What me personally, or you mean the industry? Yeah, like the industry. Because okay. I often, I often find <laughs> well, there's like this, there's this okay. kind of, um, like I don't know. It, sometimes it seems like Hollywood, especially Hollywood. Sometimes they're like, oh yes, we're fighting for social justice. We're trying to like change things and shape the culture. But then when you know after the Me Too movement and stuff like mm-hmm. that, when they get called on their bullshit, yes. then they're like, "Hey, look, we're just entertainment. Don't take us so seriously." It's like, yeah. but dude, you've been telling me well, at the is... Academy Awards for like twenty years that you're moral leaders yeah. of society. Well, then act like it. You know, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, this is something I've been talking a lot about recently. But uh, you know, early on in my career, I was doing a television series, and um, one of the writers on the show, we would, you know, get into these types of talks because he'd be hanging around a set, and he um, and he taught me that. He said, um, you know, the one place where it doesn't matter what your religion is, what what you look like, or who you are, your gender, whatever. Um, you can come together in one room together in a movie theater and watch, and, and watch a movie and have a shared story in that space, right? And that always resonated with me. And now that I'm at this stage in my life and my career and, and my, my activism as, as president and vice president, um, uh, I, I get into more of those discussions. And you're absolutely right. And what we learned through... Hashtag Me Too is and all that because you're right. Hollywood goes, oh, we're so we're so open and we're so this and we're so that. But Hollywood did a terrible disservice to, um, you know, the the LGBTQ community, et cetera, where they closeted people for you know forever, starting way back. And we know all the old actors that were closeted and have all these secret lives coming out now. And even even you know recently, like. And, sweet little Anne Heche, who was, I loved her so much, but she was ruined by Hollywood when she came out with Ellen DeGeneres and things like that. We, we, the industry has led poorly by example. And when hashtag me too came out, it was astounding how many people came out of uh, the woodwork talking about their horrible experiences. And, and what ran on the heels of that was the BLM movement and hearing about the discrimination in the industry. And what we've learned over all this time is that these stories were always around and these things were always happening. Um, the problem was, is that they weren't reaching the right people because, um, because of the nature of the work that we do. We're gig workers and we're contract workers. So we get a couple of days on set or we get that one movie or we get that one um, episode in a series or whatever. We're building our careers. Something bad happens to you. Uh, We're not fully equipped to deal with the unexpected, um, something that's violating your human rights or something like that, and either harassment or discrimination. And we, we grin, bear it, and suck it up, and we move on because we want to be known and recognized as uh, good workers, good performers, and we want to keep working and build our career. And in the back of our minds, we go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through this, and then I'm going to do something about it, right? And um, all that really did was perpetuate a really... Um, unhealthy industry where the perpetrators were never reprimanded for anything that they did. And so it it just was a cyclical thing of repetitive, repetitive, repetitive bad behavior and this whole underground thing happening all the time and, and people not speaking out. And then when hashtag me too came out and, and talk about discrimination on set, et cetera, it all goes hand in hand. Um, uh, you know, and, and people opening up about the stories and how horrified we were at how, how many there were, it was only then that the realization, like, well, why? Why was, it, why was that? And it's just simply because we are not there every day on set. And it, it was a survival thing. So now we're working, we're working tirelessly to change it, but um, Hollywood, the industry, um, and I don't want to just talk about Hollywood because I'm a Canadian actor and I live here in Canada, but uh, everywhere it's mostly, um, sorry, white male of a certain demographic run and and it just needs to change the dialogue and it's not to pinpoint so much that all white males are horrible people or anything like that, but if you're sitting in that seat and you have the power and nothing's ever happened to you before, it's hard to understand. It's really hard to understand those stories or those dangers or those those situations. And we're bringing awareness to everybody in the industry to try to change it. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I well, I I got my job uh, at at Abbott. I basically I replaced a guy who was kicked out for kind of Harvey Weinstein type like behavior for and. He, for years, there were stories that he was being really inappropriate with students. And he, I mean, the guy had like blackout curtains on his office window so that people could, and he had like a deadbolt lock on the inside of his 
who needs that? Like, what are you trying to like? Zombies going to come to your office hours? Like, well, like he he had like a deadbolt to make sure nobody could get e- even with the master key. Um, and there had been complaints about him forever. He finally was taken down because new technology meant that there's a record of like right. everything. So he was like sending really inappropriate messages and stuff, and there was a record of it. Right. And so that's how he finally got burned. But um, I remember when when I, that all came out, um, the response was very similar to like at the Me Too revelations. Like all sorts of people who had worked with this guy for decades said, "Ah, oh, he's always so nice. I've never had." And he's great. I don't believe this. This must be, you know, people just making this up. But then when you talk to other people after, they're like, yeah, he's always been a little bit of a creep, (laughs) you know, but he never was like that to me. But he would say kind of uh, creepy stuff. But I figured he was just like one of those products of the 60s who's still kind of like refighting the summer of love. Perpetrators are very clever at what they do. And they're very clever at, at tricking people. And one of the things that... Uh, offended me at the time when hashtag me too broke out was uh, the opinion that our industry was so dirty and bad and the casting couch and all this stuff. And, you know, did, did, did some people just want to do that to sleep their way to the top or whatever? And, you know, but, but at the general thing of, you know, that happens in the entertainment industry. It's so, so dirty and dark and whatever. And, And I was like, no, it happens in every industry. It's just our industry is very vocal about it. So again, in another aspect, in another lane of it, besides sitting in a movie theater all together and watching a shared story, we also are very public about everything that goes on. So we are influencers in that way as well. So we were just, we were just the leaders in yelling out the hashtag Me Too, but it was in every industry. I mean, it was pouring out of the universities and, you know, um, in law firms and anywhere where there's status and you have you know, mixed gender and all genders, you're going to have these issues, unfortunately, unfortunately. Um, But it's also because we have never educated our system or our world on um, having tools to prevent those things. And a lot of the things that we did after Hashtag Me Too came out was we did a lot of workshops with our members about um, uh, um, you know taking initiative when these things happen, right? If somebody approaches you or this or you're stuck in this situation, like what are the things that you can you can do to to um, make sure that you're you're safe and all that? And what we realized was there weren't a lot of places to report it, and the places that we had to report it weren't always necessarily safe or may fall on deaf ears and not have something done. But also I reached a point of frustration where (laughs) I was like, okay, so now I've been like part of these, running these, helping with these, but I'm starting to get frustrated because it's great that we're helping a bunch of actors or students or whatever it may be equip themselves with all these tools in their back pocket in case somebody wants to do something, uh, make any move that's harassing or discriminatory. But what? A, what? Why are we working so hard? Why are we not getting to the root of the problem, and working hard with the top heads of the industries, and saying stop behaving that way? Mm-hmm. Just can we swear on this? Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. Fucking stop behaving yeah, that way. Fucking yeah. stop behaving that way, right? Because it should only be in an exceptional circumstance that I'm showing up on set or showing up in studio or going to work or to an audition where I should have to pull out a fast tool to protect myself. That's it. Should be exceptional. Not okay, good. It's my first day on set and uh before I leave the house, I got to check in the mirror, make sure my pockets are loaded with all my stuff to protect me. That's ridiculous. Yeah. How about people acting like decent human beings and stop yeah. using their positions of power to manipulate and 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 hurt people? It's just it's gross. And so we've shone a huge light on it and I think that's a really positive thing, but we are not we're not close to fixing the issue. And there's some days when I wake up in great despair when I see how polarized our world is because in that polarization, there's a whole half thinking on the other side that believe that's okay behavior. And, yeah. that, and that, that scares me because I feel like just when we're getting close to really changing it, we've taken this shift to become polarized and there's difference of opinion there and, and status. Yeah, I mean, I, 
I don't know. I've, I haven't looked at like the sort of the stats on this anytime recently, but I, I would be surprised if there's half people who think that it's okay behavior. I think like most people, when they heard about, you know, stuff like Harvey Weinstein did, I think they were just like, that's disgusting. Like that guy's gross. Like he was really, really horrible. Um, but I do think, you know, as you mentioned before, um, I do think that there was this sense, I heard this from like so many people, um, including we actually had somebody on the podcast who's a Montreal area actress who was one of Harvey Weinstein's uh, victims, actually, and we we talked all about that. Um, but, you know, she said that, she she reiterated this as well, that there is this kind of split thing where, because I think although it does happen in law firms and in, you know, medicine and in academia, the way you're talking about, sure. I, but I think it's way, way more exceptional. I think it happens way more in, um, in kind of the acting world. Cause we're gig workers. Cause we have short term contracts. Yeah. It, and, it, and we're fighting for our lives to earn a living. And, um, that doesn't mean that we're, th- you know, we're putting ourselves in situations. It means that we don't know what to do with that situation because how is it going to jeopardize our career? I mean, I, I, I did a, a play many, many years ago where I was in a very uncomfortable situation. And I was just like, I got, I got my cat. It was different times. It was before hashtag me too. So when I tell the story, it's like, it's ridiculous. How did that happen? How come you didn't have any resources to go to? It's like they didn't exist. And if they did, I knew what was going to happen. I was going to get fired and I wanted to play this role. So I got my cast to be allies and to protect me. I just had to make it to opening night and then the director was gone and I was going to be able to to complete my role. So I I created a huge division between us. But I was fortunate. I had enough experience in my life at that time, even though I was still young. Um, My experiences were very empowering uh, with a very high level uh, people in our industry who, who, who taught me that it was just like fluke because I could have had any path, but I just happened to work with very top people who, who treated me with great respect and dignity and that empowered me. So when I was in a situation like that, I did my own protection, right? So this person, as soon as they were approaching me, I was like, hands off, you know? And, uh, but I really did not have any place to go because if I went to, to the boss, they would have just fired me and not the director because the director, that person who was running things was uh was in charge yeah they were, they were they were friends sorry they were best friends so um you know and who was i but uh yeah i'm very i'm very sympathetic to that i mean just very as recently as this morning i just was talking to a friend um who's trying to find a job right now and in another industry but and she's running into this problem as well she's a good worker as well and she a number of years ago, had a very bad experience at one institution and she spoke out about it and she actually like wrote an article about it um, and like to shine light on this. Well, now she has had such a hard time trying to get other gigs because even people who sympathize with her and agree with her, they don't want to hire her because they think, oh, she's problems. She's a whiner. She's a complainer. She's, she's drama. You know, I'd rather, if I can have like non-drama versus drama, I'll go with like somebody who's going to just go along. And so I can understand why people. And that's just so gross. That's, that's, that's the awful side of our industry that we want to keep. Well, she's in a totally different industry, but it's the same thing. It's It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. She, she, they don't want, um, getting somebody in who's potentially going to be, like make trouble. They're like, yeah, we'd rather have somebody who's who's not. But don't going you to. think it's more interesting when you get somebody in who's not afraid to make trouble? Yeah. It's more interesting. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Like, otherwise, what is this code of silence? Is a very creepy, creepy, creepy thing. And we know that in many, many aspects of the world and religion and stuff like this is wreaked havoc, right? Yeah, code of silence. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's uh, this one book that I I teach on very often. Um, It's Zimbardo's book, The Lucifer Effect, Understanding How Good People Turn Evil. 
And this guy, like, he covers everything from, like, you know, the Holocaust to genocide, ethnic cleansing, to all sorts of, like, how can people be coerced into doing really terrible things. And at the end of the book, he has, like, basically the chat. It should be called How to Be Like Fred Sarah. <laughs> like, but, like, it's all, like, <laughs> he has the end of the book is, like, a whole chapter on how to, like, train to be heroic in situations and how to create um, institutions, cultures, subcultures, workplace cultures um, that are more resistant to kind of evil taking over. And one of the main things he says is sort of like what you're just saying. He says, like, there's those shit disturbers, people who speak out, people who who bring up the annoying thing, who say the thing that nobody else, that everybody kind of, the emperor's not wearing clothes. Can, <laughs> can, can I just say he's naked right now? Like, like, he said, you should cultivate those people. He's like, yes, yeah. they're, in, they're a big pain in the ass. They can be really annoying. But, you know, historically, those, when you start silencing that kind of like loud yeah. minority, um, that's when badness can really take over because there's nobody to say like, hey, maybe this isn't like a very good fucking idea. <laughs> like, and there's nobody to like actually say that. And... Because there's silence, it, often there'll be a lot of other people in the crowd or in the group that are thinking, maybe this isn't such a good idea. But because nobody's saying anything, they think, oh, everybody else is on board, so I guess I should be too, right? And that's how you can it's get... It's fear, right? It's 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 fear and, and experience and, and awkwardness. I mean, there's a really commonly known effect of all of this is freezing, right? And everybody in the world has experienced that because I can guarantee that every person who's listening to this podcast has been in some situation and then they leave the situation and they go, I should have said, I I could have said, uh, oh, I know what I could have said or whatever, right? And we, that, that's, uh, that thing sucks. And when, and that's what makes perpetrators so, so clever, um, is because they can they can make people freeze and not know what to do in a situation. And, you know, the hashtag Me Too movement really broke out because of the politics in, in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. It was just women could not believe what had just taken place. There were marches around the world instigated by American women with the pink hats and the, you know, and and that and then eventually just the foundation just cracked open where they were like, we can't take it anymore. And... It's a step forward. And, you know, as, uh, as, as the national president of ACTRA, I, I'm, I'm often asked, like, what, what, is my, what is my goal? What's my mandate? And I've had to do a lot of deep, deep thinking of, because we cover so many aspects in the industry and there's just so many different issues and, and, and so many different amazing things that we're working on. And, uh, and I, and, and in thinking about it, I, I thought, well, you know what, uh, we're still at the beginning of a new century and we're at the beginning of a new decade and at the beginning of a new era. And what I find at this moment in time is we still talk about the eighties and the nineties and the fifties and the, you know, and we're in the last century. We're kind of, those of us like in our gen are stuck sort of reminiscing nostalgically about how things used to be and where we're at. And then I thought, well, but wait a second, things have already changed. Like, what does this mean with the BLM movement and the, and, and the hashtag me too, and, and, and people voicing and screaming and, 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 and COVID comes in and it smashes the world. And globally we have a shared experience that in my lifetime, I never thought we'd have. Right, a shared experience where the whole globe shuts down and everybody stays in their homes is freaky sci-fi movie shit, mm-hmm. right? And so we have all of these things happening and, and and culminating at the same time. And I'm like, yes, I want to know for what I do in my industry, how are we paving the path forward for the next generations to come? What is the film, television, radio, voice? theater industry. What is it? How is it going to be? What stories are we going to be telling? What is the influence that we're going to have on the world? Because it's not what we did in the last century. It has to be something different because we're in such a different place. And so 
that kind of really excites me in, in my position as we're working to improve our working conditions all the time, which is our goal and which is what I'm an activist on. Um, that is my main thing. It's like forget about the past. Forget about what we used to do. That shit doesn't work. Mm-hmm. We know it doesn't. Yeah. The, we'll, we'll keep the good stuff that worked because there's a lot of good stuff. But the shit that didn't work, we're changing it now in this new century, in this new decade, in this new era. And we're moving forward. We're paving a path forward so that in the next century, they're going to look back and learn from this century. We can't be the same as the last century. Yeah. Right. And it can't just be that this century is about iPhones and computers. It can't be like it's got to be more. We have to evolve as people. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it, it's very good, the point that you make about the, that they're gig workers and that a lot of the abuses that happened, the kind of the Me Too stories, happened precisely because because of concentration of power. That if you have in any industry, if you have like high concentration of power where like you having a job or not having a job is dependent on the whims of a particular person or like a small group of people that is inherently a situation that's going to produce a lot of like injustice. And yeah, like I've, I've been asked a number of times by, especially by like Americans who are really obsessed with the kind of the culture war and like cancel culture and all this stuff and everything. They'll say like, you know, what do you think about, you know, this person getting canceled and that, or what do you think about that? And my, my response invariably sounds like I'm speaking like an alien, like from another planet I say, actually, I think the real problem is that you don't have enough unionization. Like, you don't have enough worker protections because, like, I'm not really interested very much in the specifics of whether this particular person, like, you know, did something bad or not. I mean, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I'm not sure. But I do know that the big problem is that this is a worker in an industry where they can be, like, gotten rid of on a whim, that this committee or this like boss can on a whim just get rid of you without any like due process. That's a high concentration of power that I said like that could not happen to me because I'm unionized, right? If somebody wants to, if if John Abbott College wants to get rid of me, uh, they would have to like, there would have to be a process. They would have to demonstrate. They couldn't just say like, oh, we found a tweet you did like in 2019 and, and, we don't like it and people are mad about it. So we're firing it. No. So like a lot of the problems that, that actors faced is, is definitely because they're gig workers and because of a very, you know, centralization of power, which means that people can on a whim, you know, act. So how exactly do you, what kind of protections do you offer for actors to make sure that they're paid right, treated well? Like what, you know, what are the, so what's we the have, deal? Uh, we I have, know what my union gives me. Like, what do you give? Well, we uh, have a bunch of collective agreements with um, different aspects of the industry. And so every couple of years we go to the table and we will bargain our agreement with them. And inside those agreements are all of our protections. And there's a lot of really good protections. It's just they need to be enforced. We don't bargain the enforcement of it. Um, if some, if we see something coming up and they go, but it's in the agreement, we go, oh, indeed you are correct. And so therefore we need to enforce it. (laughs) And then we go back to like our actress staff and, and we make sure that when a production comes to town or something, if there's something that that's been rearing its ugly head, then they'll push forward on, on enforcing that. But, um, that is really where our protections come in is from our collective agreements. It's all in there. And every time we go back to the table, we improve on, on, on things in every way that we can, like, I would say since hashtag Me Too came broke out, um, we've improved on harassment and consent and issues with nudity and intimacy. We've incorporated well, we don't have it in the agreement yet, but we hope to get it in soon. Intimacy coordinators because it's new, so that was still in development. Um, but we did put parameters around nudity and love scenes. Um, we uh, we have um, enforced inclusion. Um, and broadening, um, you know, diversity in all in all means um, when it comes to gender, uh, color, um, 
disability, every aspect of it to be more inclusive and that, that uh, casting should be opening up to, to, to broadening the stories. So all of those things have greatly improved over the years. It's still a work in progress. Um, when we were pushing for uh, you know, anti-harassment sets and um, uh, one of the things that we thought would be really easy was asking for consent on set that, you know, somebody's going to touch you, they just have to tell you and warn you. And, and producers pushed back and said, no, there's no time for that. And I was appalled. I was like, oh, my God, but you don't know what it's like when some random person is running up to me and their hand is up my shirt. And I'm like, whoa. And then they go, oh, hi, I'm the sound person. Uh, I need to mic you. And you're like, okay, where's the introduction? Or, you know, this is what I'm going to be doing. You buy well, me dinner or something? Yeah, like, you, you know, know it's like, and there's just, it, sets move fast and not everything is done on purpose and not everybody's a pig, but but that's a, that, that's a, like a, that's a real story yeah. that, that is a, that's an innocent play, but still, before you're putting your hand up somebody's shirt, you should be um, asking for consent, at least introducing yourselves. And this was very problematic to producers, but you know what happened? What? The pandemic. And so then... Oh, suddenly the COVID <laughs> we were like, police got oh, on them. Oh, there were some pluses to, to COVID. So so COVID, you know, C equaled C. COVID equaled consent. You could not... When we... We were so lucky and fortunate to be some of the first out of the gate to be back at work because we were back on set, back in studio. And everything became about consent you cannot step within that two meters of each other on any set without consent let alone touch people randomly massage your colleague <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know well, i remember i remember we we would invite you we would invite you to to parties and stuff like that and when you were on that production and you could not even be just if you were in a, if you came to Elsa's, or if, if you were just like around a group of, of other people, that that all by itself would invalidate you from being like on this. It was all these like really kind of they they were very careful, right? Like you were you were saying that like that's so yeah. that was right to yeah. try and keep. So people it was a safe. blessing. So now it's like because of COVID, it's now embedded in people. There's nobody running up to you now and shoving their hand up your shirt to say, "Oh yeah, oh oops, by the way, I'm the I'm the sound person. I need to mic you." Now there there's consent because they need to. It's all about invading your personal space, which which is amazing because it's just it's respect and dignity. It's really simple at the end of the day, and that trickles down, right? When we start behaving in a certain manner, everybody starts becoming better people, and then the dream is to slowly diminish those perpetrators and give them less power in the room and less intimidation tactics and less manipulative, um, you know, ways of, of sneakily doing things and trapping people where they're frozen and they can't get out of a situation, however it may be, because there's billions of, of ways for situations to be. And I'll just add one more thing. Like when we were um, dealing with hashtag me too early on, we had lawyers and um, uh, social workers come and, and speak with our, our council in Montreal to help us, like what we could share with our union members on what to do in a case of whatever. And <laughs> everything that they were talking about was more in a world of like, you know, if you worked at a law firm or you worked at a school or you were like where there's you're with these people every day. So we they, they had very simple answers. Well, you just go to HR and you just explain to them and then they'll put it in and they'll do case or whatever. And we were like, okay, so we don't have really an HR like that. And so, and they go, well, no. So for example, if you're doing a Bell commercial and somebody harasses you, you go to phone Bell's HR and, and we're like, we don't deal with those people. We don't work in a Bell building. We are separate contractors. And so we actually don't have access to Bell. Sorry, Bell, not putting you on the spot. But. <laughs> <laughs> Bell, Bell, um, HR, right? So we're a totally different thing. So if I'm in studio doing a radio commercial for Bell and something happens, I actually don't have anywhere to go except to report it to my union, who then can go and depending on what the structure is, there's not always a recourse. We've improved a lot of that now. But the simple thing of like where you could go if you were working in a regular job that was nine to five or, or was a salary or, you know, you have resources and we didn't. And then you're like, okay, so then let's just say um, I do deal with something that was associated with a Bell Radio commercial. And then the next time um, I'm, I'm on, 
on set shooting a movie, but I'm with the same person. Then what? Because now it's a totally different contract and a totally different. And the lawyers and the social workers were gobsmacked. They were like, shit, we don't know. We don't know because actually you guys don't fall anywhere. And that's where our union comes in, like as strong as we can to protect our members as strong as we can. And we have, we've improved things. We, we have um, help hotlines that are available 24-7 across the country. So anytime you're in studio, on set, doing any type of work, if there's any kind of harassment, discrimination, uh, uncomfortable feelings, you can call these hotlines. They are, are professionals in what they do. They can help you in whatever the situation is. And, and that all came out of that because we were like, we need an even better resource because – you know, our, our staff is um, across the country is amazing, but they aren't uh, therapists or psychologists, and they work nine to five. So if you're on a night shoot and something happens, where do you go? Well, now we have this 24-hour helpline available to all our members across the country, and we're 28,000 members across the country. And, uh, and that's a really, really amazing thing, and you, and you can see that and we're, we advertise it constantly so people that know that it's available, and we can see that, that – you know, performers know that it's there just in case. That, and that's that's everything, knowing yeah. that there's that's, that's if really there's great. something. Because especially if people think that that's just the way it is. But I, I just want to circle back to something you said before because this has always been like a question in my mind. You probably have the answer to it. So my mother's husband uh, worked in the film industry in Toronto for decades. Um, now he lives here. But like, and all sorts of like, famous Hollywood movies and stuff like that were actually shot in Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal, stuff like that. And I had always heard that the reason why they come to shoot up here is because it's way cheaper. But if ACTRA is making sure that Canadian actors are getting paid well, then how is it? Is it cheaper for all the other stuff, the like other production set? or? or... Oh, it's even cheaper for them to hire local actors. Really, we, we don't get paid the same amount that you would as a SAG after member, big Hollywood stars, right? Would no, but we're as good, if <laughs> well, not yeah. better. <laughs> but yeah, no, we have uh, we have um, you know minimum wages that they have to pay us at that minimum. They they're not allowed to pay us under a certain minimum. Uh, we have good agents that try to negotiate above minimum and depending on the production but we're not making the millions here like you know if they're gonna suddenly come up and film the score or whatever it was that came up and at one point uh they're they're not saying oh my god we love that actor eleanor noble and we want to pay her a million dollars for three days you know like wish i wish but no that that's so yes they do save a lot of money and they get to work with quality actors and we are quality actors and boy do we wish we could be paid what we're, what our value is yeah so but it okay so they're still getting a bargain even with union yeah, yeah. wages and everything like that so yes yeah because i i've always wondered what but is they the can't savings? undercut us <laughs> like i thought i you know for a while i thought it was just the exchange rate because I knew there were a lot of of factors, right? It's the exchange rate. They get amazing crews, amazing performers. Um, They get tax credits, tax benefits from the, you know, each provincially it's each, they each provide a tax benefit. So there's a lot of incentive to come up here and produce and it's great, but we don't only want to be a service industry here up in Canada, you know, Mm -hmm. like we're fighting now to, to really promote um, Canadian industry, Canadian content, Canadian stories, with Canadian producers, directors, performers. Um, we want to, it's our time. It's our time to get on the global stage. You know, Netflix is coming up, these big media giants. And um, we don't want to just service them for American stories. We want to have our platform within their their mediums and, and, and create stuff that's going to go globally. And everybody around the world loves Canada and it's time for them to hear our stories, right? Yeah. Well, it... it- this goes back to the you know one of the questions I had earlier on, it, which I don't know the answer to it, but Canada, at least as far back as the mid twentieth century, had made a and definitely under Trudeau the first um, made a big push towards kind of Canadian content, and that you have to, and then of course here in Quebec they also had kind of like Quebec content and stuff like that. So there's huge funding of the arts. 
because like, we want to tell our stories. We don't want to just be like a satellite of the American Empire or before that the British Empire or the French Empire or whatever. Like, we don't want like all of the focus to be on Paris or London and then later on like New York, L.A., like where we're just always this very colonial mindset where we always think that, oh, the important people and the important things happen over there and we're just here. We're, and we're, so, the, we're the little lowly sibling across yeah, the border. Yeah, like, hey, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> Sorry about can that. I, can I have some more, please? <laughs> yeah, like, so, and one of the ways was we're going to really fund this stuff, right? Which, that makes sense to me. Like, intuitively, that, that makes sense. Yes, you, you want to kind of fund the arts and fund these things. However... I, I wonder, how do you do that without, like, being, like, really cheesy? Like, where the Canadian content or the Quebec content or the, just becomes, like, a bunch of horrible cliches about, you know, what was that, that Mike Myers thing recently, the the pentaveret or something oh, like yeah. that, where it's just, like, a bunch of ridiculous cliches. Yeah, but we don't do that. About, like, we've had great stories, right? We've had uh, Kim's Convenience and Schitt's Creek and Working Moms. Like, those are all, like... You know, we had a 192, which was based off the Quebec. Uh, Quebec has its own, on the French side, they have their own star system. They have their own culture that they put in their television shows and television series and, and movies. Uh, the rest of Canada, the ROC, uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're working really hard on on uh, creating a star system as well. Not meaning the next Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt or whatever, but uh, overall our status across the country being... Um, that you know, we're worthy artists. We, we've got a lot of talent, and we have a story to tell. And there's so many ways to tell that story. And I don't believe that, like, that it's going to fall into some, you know, Canadian hokey cliche. I think there has been a lot of that in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't mention any of the shows. <laughs> we all know what you're talking about. And I'm I, like, what I, is yeah. that? That is, I can't relate to that at all. And I'm a Canadian, but yeah. no, I think that things have gone in such a different direction and it's so much better. And we're only just starting. We're only just starting. And as soon as we get cooperation from like, you know, big media giants to pay into our industry, then that that money, that tax money that they would pay into can cope back into our industry, back into the pockets of producers, directors, writers, and then into performers and crews. And you've, we are, we are, you know, multi-billion dollar industry in Canada. So, uh, and we can get bigger and better and, and become our own, you know, I mean, it, again, it's, it's our time and it's, I, I just, it's our time. That's yeah. all I feel. I'm very confident about it. And then we just got to have it happen. Yeah, is it still the case that because I've I've heard this from comedians and from people who comedy writers that you go down to LA and it's just ridiculous. It's like practically every second person in the room is Canadian. Yeah. That it's it's really like Canadians punch way above their weight when it comes to um in in a number of kind of entertainment like in acting, writing, comedy and stuff like that. So um it, it, How do you prevent them, like, all of our kind of yeah. best talent from just being, like, taken well, away, that's it. brain we drain? Give, we, give it, we give incentive to stay here, right? I mean, it's always been in the past. And even through, I'm, I've gone to L.A. and done my, my time in L.A. And, you know, it's how you feel the trajectory is in the, the career of being a Canadian actor is that you, you build up your resume and then you hop on a plane and go to L.A. and you try to make it. And, but the amount of Canadians that do that and make it, and then once they've made it, we claim them as our own, is like, you know, that's astronomical and crazy. Um, they're talented, and they are our own, and they're proud Canadians. But we want to build an industry here that gives incentive to stay, and it is possible. It is possible. But there's only Hollywood and Bollywood, I believe, in the world that are funded within its own industry, right? And I we think, are, uh, not, we don't the, have that. We're government and Nollywood, the Nigerian one, I think, is self-funded oh, yeah? too. It's like um, they, yeah, they apparently like there's a massive film industry in Nigeria as well. But yeah, but yeah, it's probably not very many. Right. You know, and this is, um, I was I was reading a couple months ago. I was rereading Tony Jutt's book, Post War. It's all about like post-war Europe. And he talks about like these people in, especially in France, but not only France and in Scandinavia, they very, very clearly saw in the 1950s, okay, we've got this like Cold War happening 
and American culture and Hollywood movies are just so they've got like a huge megaphone and they're spreading through all over the world. If we don't fund our own film industry like crazy and tell our own stories and we don't like fund it with taxpayer money, we're just all going to become satellites of of American culture. We're just going to be a subset right. because all of our kids, everybody's just consuming the this this music, these, you know, these movies, these this media and it's going to like <laughs> brainwash them all and we're going to lose our culture. And so they started investing but the the argument against it from kind of libertarian free market types was like, wow, that's like welfare and you should just like stand on your own two feet and you should like if it's not profitable it should fail. You know, I mean, sometimes I see the point of that, but it does just default to kind of Amazon running everything or McDonald's yeah. everything. Like, I mean, what do you, do you think like we yeah. should pay uh, lots of like tax money towards the arts and so why? Like, Well, what? if we had the big media giants paying their fair share of taxes, then we wouldn't need the government to fund it so much because that money, well, it would ultimately, I guess, go to the government and then come back into our industry to help fund ourselves that way. Um, you know, do people need to pay vast amounts out of their own pocket in, in taxes? Um, no, but they should be paying something because it's part of our culture. It's it, Arts and culture is so important to history, to who we are, what we are. And um, um, we... we, we learned some really interesting things through COVID, like very conservative governments that don't typically like to support the arts and culture, which is always weird. That always confuses me because I'm like, don't you like going to museums and seeing theater and going to the opera and, you know, going to a rock concert or whatever? I mean, it's all, you know, we're watching a movie. Anyway, during COVID, everybody was locked in their house and what did they depend on, right? They depended on mm -hmm. entertainment. And it started to shift the conversation in like more of the conservative world a little bit of how important entertainment was and that people were running out of shows. Yeah. Right? People were running out of things to watch. It was crazy. People were like, I've seen all the Netflix. I've yeah. seen all the Amazon Prime, all of the Crave. Yeah. I have nothing left. Yeah. And so whereas they want to threaten gig livelihood, right, and give us more instability than what it is, they suddenly realized how dependent everybody is on it. So then, you know, now we're sort of in a different phase of COVID, not COVID. And I'm not really sure how they've shifted their mind thought again. But, I mean, we shall see because I'll be speaking with Parliament soon. And um, But, yeah, that's disconcerting when we're split in this country about whether arts and culture is something important to fund or not. It absolutely freaking is. Well, this, going back is. to the, the previous point, like it – these things that came in and mainly in kind of the post-World War II period, mid-20th century, uh, where to try and kind of new Canadian nationalism and we want to kind of support our own stories and the arts. And so all these like things were put in place during that time that Canadian content on radios and on TV and like mm -hmm. in, in books. And so there was this whole, like in the 1950s, for instance, because of these new rules, there was a whole bunch of like novels that came out that were set like murder on Mount Royal, like all these like local Montreal stories started being, cause you could get a lot of funding. They're like, we want to support stories that are, we want to support the idea that not everything interesting in the world happens in New York or London or like Rome or Paris or something like things can interesting can happen here. And so if you wanted to write like a local story, anything there was a lot of money for that so if you if you look in libraries there's all these like amazing novels that are set in in montreal cities from that period but point being this was all all these like things were put in place in a world that largely doesn't exist anymore because right. most people get their music get their entertainment their movies they stream it so how how does actra and how is the canadian government like making sure that those values are sort of applied to this new situation, or are they? I, mm. I don't mean to put you on the spot, <laughs> but but do you, you understand what I'm Not saying? A like lawyer. Like how do you, how do you make sure that like that 
the spirit of those laws and those things, which is like we want to make sure like yeah. we are we have a piece Media of this action. Content, yeah. Like how do you make that happen when everything's online? Like because I don't even I have not paid for cable in oh years. God. I don't even remember. That. Like I I just we just pay for streaming services. Right. Okay. So a lot of these like Canadian content that's, roles. That's what we're doing right now. Like we are in the middle of modernizing our broadcasting act, which is the, the streaming streaming act. And uh, it's it's been through a couple of phases and it's an ongoing process. It hasn't been modernized in a decade or two, something like that. And so it's time because so much has changed. And so <laughs> That that's about it. Like what we are fighting for is exactly that. That streaming that that streaming modes come into the process and pay into the system so that it can fund itself. Otherwise, it becomes this sort of dying art because it's not it's not financially funded. And then those those big giant streamers are keeping all the money for themselves um, off off of the backs of. Canadian storytellers and artists, right? Performance yeah. directors, writers, and all of that. So, yeah. Well, there, there is this, I think, this sort of libertarian myth out there sometimes that, oh, the, this is just the market will solve these things and we can just, mm-hmm. like, let it. But no, you didn't it, clearly, it clearly doesn't because, you know, TikTok is basically, it's Chinese, right? Which means you can have as many... Black Lives Matter TikTok videos as you want, as many idle no more, like indigenous rights, uh, Me Too stuff. But if you, you'll notice there's absolutely no TikTok that's critical of the Chinese state or the fact that they have all sorts of Uyghurs, Muslims, and concentration camps. No, 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 no. So as it turns out, it's not just a free market. It does matter who owns, like, the companies, who owns. TikTok, who owns Amazon, who owns Netflix, and whether their values, you know, if they get to decide what goes on there or not. I mean, the Saudi royal family was able to, like, completely block certain comedians' stories on Netflix, right? Which is crazy, right? Yeah. They can have that kind of power. So owning actually matters, as it turns out, right? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the pandemic being kind of... Um, consciousness raising on this score that's like 100 percent true like i think a lot of people realize like oh let's just not produce protective you know ppe like let's just not produce masks and stuff like that because we can buy them cheaper from china and then they suddenly realized oh wow we have a global pandemic and they're just like yeah we're gonna keep ours (laughs) and suddenly you're like we have no capacity to actually produce our own ppe like because we just outsourced it all because the magic of the market, right? You can just like, just if it, if it's not yeah. profitable here, don't bother, right? Well, it turns out it's actually important to produce your own PPA, your own culture, your own yeah. like movies, your own Absolutely. kind of stories. You know, yeah. So I'm just wondering like when you go into these discussions with, I mean, obviously I, I don't want to put you on the spot. You know, you don't have to say like anything you can't, you can't say on in public, but like, do you have to kind of make this case to the liberal government oh, officials yes, or yeah, are they do. on board with it or do you have to make the case? Uh, well, we definitely have to make the case. And, and you know, there's a vote. So we have to make the case. We want the NDP on our side and they mostly are. Most of the liberals are and the conservatives have sort of like a different point of view. Um, they Conservatives tend to go down a fictitious uh rabbit hole for lack of a better term of like uh, we don't want to modernize the broadcasting act or the streaming act too much because um, that takes away people's um, freedom of choice and free you know rights and and we're like no no it doesn't doesn't say that anywhere so (laughs) it just it just if you are making something for profit then if you're monetizing on something then you need to pay your fair share of taxes so that we can sustain an industry here and if you don't do that then you're 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 killing us. <laughs> you're just killing us. And this is this is our time. This is our chance. This is our opportunity. And we need that to keep, you know, creating what our culture is and our stories and and keeping our industry and keeping you know a billion dollar industry op- open in Canada. 
So, yeah, we do have to argue it. That's sad. That's sad because I, I would have... Of course I would have thought the liberal government would have been just so down with that. They mostly they... are. They mostly are. But, you know, it's, it's, they, they don't have like a majority government, right? So they can't just be like, yep, good, close. You know, they don't. So, yeah. so there's a lot of conflict yeah. in the room. Yeah, so I, I know in academia, which is the, the field that I have spent a lot of my life in, I know that the major labor issue right now in North America is that increasingly the amount of like tenured faculty, the amount of like positions where you're making a good living, where you've got benefits, where you've got retirement, where you've got everything um, has been shrinking over time. And increasingly more and more of the work is being done by essentially gig workers from people like postdocs and adjuncts and people who are part-timers who don't get paid properly they don't have proper worker protections they don't have like so they and that and that's the main kind of like labor issue in academia right what is the as the president of of actra what is the major kind of battle or what was the major kind of problem that you're dealing with and on the horizon for actors as as a sector of the labor market as a sector of the labor market, okay, so so to be recognized as gig workers, which means that we should be paying into employment insurance in case another COVID ever hits us, God forbid. Um, uh, w- protecting gig workers also involves averaging out our income over, like our, uh, or sorry, our taxes, averaging our taxes out um, for our income because our ta- our. I apologize. Our income fluctuates. Mm-hmm. And so you can be earning six figures one year and then earning just above the poverty line or below the poverty line the following year. And the way that we're taxed here, if you're earning a lot of money, you're taxed on a huge amount. We get no extra to you know, help us um, support our living the following year if we should earn less money and have less work. Um, and then you're almost saving more money because you get taxed less on the poverty line uh, mm-hmm. area, but that's still not a lot, enough to live on. So what they used to do is they used to average out our income over three years before they taxed us. Um, and we want to go back to that format because it would help a lot in us being sustainable human beings in this world where we're still paying our fair share of taxes, but we are able to sustain ourselves, pay our rents and our mortgages and feed our children and et cetera, et cetera. Um, we also... That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's what they do for farmers, for people in the fishing. Like, whenever you're doing something where you might get a really great harvest this year, but then, like, sucks next year, they will even things out. Right. I didn't, I'm didn't. i surprised it doesn't exist it, already. It used to be, and they took it away many years ago, and, and we've been like, hey, can we have that back? Because it doesn't really work for us. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see where we lobby for that. And then our continued fight with our um, with our partners across the table uh, on our collective agreements to make sure that we have safe uh, working conditions and fair rates and um, proper protections should anything happen and that we um, and that the the industry is paying into our pension so that we have something to survive on at the end. So those are our main things on a labor side of things and what our union does is protecting our members and trying to make sure that we are all working as much as possible within a safe environment. Yeah. And I know that there are specific groups that want my union to not exist. Uh, They would really like um, basically, you know, profs, teachers, educators to just have independent contracts that they work out with the institutions and that it's all kind of like uh, they they don't want they can't stand um, dealing with the union for a lot of reasons. Are there any kind of groups that are actively do not want Actra to exist? Like would like to like get rid of Actra completely? No, none. No. <laughs> <laughs> Leading question. Like, are there are there industry groups that? <laughs> yes, there are. So so okay, we are, are we are in a dispute right now. Um, it's public knowledge that uh, our national commercial agreement. Um, they would like to work non-union and they want us to agree to that. And of course, a union would never agree to working non-union. Um, we would never agree to our members working non-union because working non-union means no protections and exactly what we were talking. 
talking about safety on set, um, benefits, uh, pension, all those uh, small things that that come with. They they are small on the big scale of a budget. They are very small for. Um, uh, a commercial industry, um, but they want to take that away from us. And uh, we are up against somebody who's been around and um, broken unions before. And so we are fighting for our union and we're not going to stop the fight. So we are in the process of doing that. And uh, But yeah, uh, we, we've had a relationship with the commercial side for 60 years and we are sad that we are in this dispute and we hope to move past it in a better, better place. I hope you do, because, I mean, all these exposés that have been coming out with the New York Times and others, these, like, uh, Amazon hiring these, like, crazy expensive union busters to come in and just the stuff that they – they really go hard. It's unethical. On, they, go, I, they go really hard. Like, it's – it's you kind of can't even believe it's legal. I'm, some of the I'm, stuff I'm not do. even sure how some people can sleep at night when they know all the money that goes into – a commercial production, and when you hire a professional actor, it's such a minimal cost in the whole entire cost. Yet we're the ones that are it's like, being what, attacked. Like a fraction of one percent. Oh, it's like it's nothing, right? And yeah. And um, what we do know is that they've locked us out right now, so actor members are not being able to work on on um, some commercials with with certain agencies uh, because they've locked us out. Um, and they're working non-union, but we do know that it takes longer to work with non-union. So they may pay them less, but they're not getting the same results. And uh, we're pretty sure they're feeling. Some of them are starting to feel very frustrated that they they want their access to our actor members, and uh, and we're like, then then stop locking us out. Let's mm-hmm. resolve this. Let's uh, get back to the table and and come to an agreement like we've done for sixty years. So it's kind of sad that there is. Um, you know, a fraction of our industry that wants to destroy our our union, but we're not going to let that happen. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and I hope I hope you get the get the word out and people because I think there's there's a real shift happening in the culture right now towards unionization, and it's happening in many diff- different sectors. And people are people are now realizing, I guess, because of the pandemic and everything are realizing like you've got to have support like you've got to have you can't just do it we can't do it by ourselves Uh, because if you do then you know the the big boys just run away with the ball so but anyway thank you so much for all the work you're doing and it's been great and it has been great yeah and to our listeners uh if this is the first time we've had an episode in a while um as many of you already know um I've been dealing with a, a family situation with uh, an elderly relative who's um, in decline quite a bit. So that's uh, taken up a lot of my attention for the last couple of months. But we are back and uh, we'll be coming out with episodes um, on a regular basis uh, forthwith. All right. Uh, see you next time. Bye. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank Bye. you.